Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello again, my friends. Welcome back to a sort of bonus episode of Vicious Villains. I wanted to put out an extra episode this week just because last week we left things on a little bit of a cliff note. So yeah, I figured while a lot of us are kind of stuck in our houses right now, it would be a perfect time to gather some more information and do some more research on our main man here lately, Mr. John Wayne Gacy. So I want to pick things up kind of where we left off. Um, If you haven't listened to my first episode on John Wayne Gacy, um, definitely check that out before you listen to this episode. Because in last episode, we went over his childhood, his early years, his marriage, his, you know, first few murders, we went over a lot of information. I think it was a little bit over an hour long. So you definitely want all of that information before you listen to this episode today. So definitely check that out and then come back and check out this episode. So this is going to be a three-part little mini-series. I already kind of have it all planned out and divided into about three episodes, so just kind of be looking for that. So we'll have about one more episode after today on John Wayne Gacy, and then we'll be moving on from him and putting him back to rest. So anyway, today we're going to be covering the rest of his murders. We're going to be talking about what led up to those, how those went down, and some of the aftermath from them. Um, And yeah, so we're just going to get started and then the story will unfold from there, right? (laughs) So we are going to start today by talking about Gacy's cruising years. And this was a phrase that he coined himself, and this was referring to the time from 1976 until 1978. And basically, this was just when he was on a roll. Um, This is when the majority of Gacy's murders took place. And, you know, it was a lot. It was a lot squeezed into just a couple of years. And he, like I said, was the one who referred to these years as his, quote, cruising years, end quote. So let's start with... The year 1976. So one month after Gacy's divorce was finalized, he kidnapped an 18-year-old young man by the name of Daryl Sampson. And on April 6, 1976, that was the day that Sampson had last been seen, and he was seen alive in Chicago. Now, skipping forward a little bit to May 14th, 15-year-old Randall Reffitt disappeared, and he was walking home from school 
he had been gagged and he died by asphyxiation. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to say that so many times in this episode, guys. So just bear with me. If I'm struggling, it's probably because I'm trying to say asphyxiation. (laughs) So I apologize. So yeah, he had been gagged and he had died by asphyxiation because of that. Hours later, the same day, y'all, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton vanished, and he was walking home from his sister's apartment at the time, and both of these young men were buried in the same grave in Gacy's crawl space underneath his house, and crawl space is probably also going to be another vocabulary word of the week. We're going to hear it a lot. There would end up being several bodies found underneath Gacy's house. That was just his go-to place. He will eventually get away from that and we'll get there, but yeah, so we're going to be visiting the crawl space quite a bit. So on June 3rd, 1976, Gacy killed yet another victim, 17-year-old Michael Bonin. And Mr. Bonin was traveling from Chicago to a place called Waukegan, and I think I actually said that right. I feel a little confident in that one. I usually don't, but on that one, I think I may have got it right. But anyway, Bonin had been strangled with a ligature, unfortunately, and like the others, buried in the crawl space. Ten days later, 16-year-old William Carroll went missing. He had been murdered and buried under Gacy's kitchen, so not really in the crawl space. It was in a different area underneath um, Gacy's kitchen, and this was kind of a mass grave there will be several bodies buried in that little area so we'll we'll definitely be revisiting that so anyway there was also an unidentified male found underneath Gacy's home and testing had determined that this male had been murdered between the dates of June 13th and August the 6th um what we know about him he had medium dark brown hair and he was aged between 23 and 30 years old and he was somewhere between five foot one and five foot six. Uh, something interesting, they found that he was actually missing his two front teeth. So they determined that it could be possible that this victim wore a denture to kind of disguise that. And this male was buried underneath 16 year old James Hakinson, also buried underneath Gacy's home. Um, and, and, Hakinson had last called his family on August the 5th, and he was buried underneath 17-year-old Rick Johnson, who was last seen alive on August the 6th. And so, it's going to be a lot of names and a lot of dates thrown at you guys. Um, I hope it's not too disjointed and it still kind of flows. I want to keep it all in sequential order as much as possible, but there's just... There's a lot of victims in this story, and I want to make sure I get as much accurate, factual information out there as I can, because I feel like they're the most reliable parts of the story. You know, you can always fall back on them and count on them. So that's kind of where I like to stick when I do my research is a lot of the facts and things that we all know to be true. I don't want to skew anyone's opinion either way. Um, So I just wanted to throw that out there. So, eventually there would be two more unidentified males found, and these unidentified unidentified males were estimated to have been killed sometime between August and October in the year 1976. The first victim was buried on top of William Carroll, who died on June the 13th. 
and underneath Rick Johnston between, you know, in between them. Um, we'll talk about what these graves sort of look like later on in, in this episode, but just to kind of give you a feel for what these graves look like in this crawl space, there was like, they were only about two feet tall. So, and he would stack them two, sometimes three people on top of each other. So they would only have maybe just a few feet in between each other. So they were really like sandwiched in there, like, like sardines in a can. It it was, it was tight. Um, so yeah, just to kind of give you a little bit of a visual about what we're talking about here. So, um, this first identified male was aged between 15 and 24 and could have possibly been killed between August the 6th and 20th of 1976. The second unidentified male was likely to have been murdered between August and October of 1976, and this victim had dark brown wavy hair and was between 18 and 22 years old. It was discovered that he had abscessed teeth at the time of the murder, so that was something um, a little distinctive to police to maybe help identify him in the future, which unfortunately would not happen. And this victim was buried in the northeast corner of Gacy's crawl space. Um, And I know you're probably wondering, a, a man built like Gacy overweight and, you know, not super active, how is he digging all these graves underneath his house? Well, Gacy would actually have his employees at his contracting company help him dig these graves underneath his house. And he would just, you know, make up stuff and make up excuses about what they were really doing it for. He would say, oh, it's for plumbing. I'm putting in pipes or something ridiculous like that. And they believed it. You know, they they didn't have any reason to question him at the time. So I can understand that. But yeah, so he definitely had help digging those graves under there and he just would lie about why they were doing it. So on October 24th, 1976, Gacy abducted and killed two teenage friends and their names were Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. They had last been seen outside of a restaurant in Chicago on Clark Street. They were both strangled and they were both buried in the same grave in Gacy's crawl space. Two days later, 19-year-old William Bundy went missing. And what's interesting about William Bundy was that he was actually a PDM contractor's employee. So he worked for Gacy. And he disappeared after telling his family that he was going to a party. He had been strangled and buried in Gacy's crawl space with the other young men right underneath Gacy's master bedroom. So that's kind of creepy. I would hate for that to be my final resting place. So, on December 1976, 17-year-old Gregor Godsick disappeared. Um, He was also a PDM contractor. So, this, in my opinion, is where Gacy really starts to get reckless. Like, he's picking from the pool of people that he knows and people that are in his life. So, I feel like that is going to make him look suspicious, obviously, because he's a common denominator. So, not, not the smartest of ideas, but anyway... So, Godzik was also a PDM contractor employee, like I said, and he had last been seen dropping off his girlfriend at her house after he had taken her out on a date that night. He had only worked for PDM for three weeks before he had disappeared, and he had actually told his family that Gacy had him, quote, dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles, end quote, in the crawl space. 
So like I said, Gacy would just say, oh, can you help me dig these big giant holes that are pretty much just the size of graves? And it's, it's, it's for plumbing though, I promise. Like, that's ridiculous. But anyway, Godzik's car was later found abandoned in Niles. His parents and sister contacted Gacy at this time about his disappearance and Gacy told him that he had run away. He said that he actually had a message from Godzik on his answering machine. And when his parents asked to hear it, Gacy said, well, it didn't have anything interesting on it, basically. And he said he erased it, so there was nothing to see anymore. So, cruising right on in to 1977, on January 20th of that year, 19-year-old John Sizik. Oh, I know, I probably didn't say that right. It's spelled S-Z-Y-C. So, I'm sure someone will correct me. But anyway, we're just going to call him John. How about that? Um, So, John had disappeared. And he was actually an acquaintance of Butkovich, Godsick, and Gacy. So, again, making himself a common denominator with these victim choices. Um, He was lured to Gacy's house. He thought he was going to actually sell Gacy a car. So, Gacy was acting like he was interested in buying this car off of him. And he was murdered, just like the rest, and buried in the crawl space above Godsick, unfortunately. In August of 1977, a man by the name of Michael Rossi happened to get arrested. And what does that have to do with anything, you may ask? Well, he was pulled over in John's car. And Rossi told the police, I bought this from John Wayne Gacy. So... Rossi had actually initially been caught stealing gas from a service station in that said car. The attendant noted the license plate number and alerted the authorities. So the police traced the number all the way back to Gacy's house. And Gacy claimed that John sold him the car back in February because he was going to be moving. And the police believed the story and told John's family that the car had been sold to Gacy. And, of course, they checked the VIN number of the car to confirm that it did, in fact, belong to John. So, it was 100% John's car. So, Gacy would, after this, kill another, unfortunately, unidentified young man. And this young man was killed between December of 1976 and March of 1977 and was around the age of 25 there was a key fob found next to him in with the artifacts that were buried with him. There was an inscription in that key fob that suggests that this victim's first name may be Greg or Gregory. And he was, of course, buried in the crawl space as well, right underneath 20-year-old John Prestige. And John Prestige was visiting friends in the Chicago area when Gacy killed him on March the 15th. Gacy killed one more unidentified male. Um, This male had been exhumed from the crawl space, and the time of the murder was unfortunately found to be inconclusive, so they weren't sure when he had actually passed. He was buried directly beneath the entrance to Gacy's home. Ooh, this makes my skin crawl. And he was aged between 17 and 21, and they actually found out that he had fractured his collarbone long before he had disappeared. So it was a previous injury from several years ago, but, you know, it could help identify him one day. So 
Going forward, let's go to March 1977. Gacy was hired as a construction supervisor at PE Systems. This was a firm that specialized in the remodeling of drugstores and pharmacies and things like that, and it gave Gacy the opportunity to travel for work regularly. He claimed to have worked on up to four projects at a time, so here he goes, being Gacy, overloading himself and doing a crazy amount of work all the time. And he claimed to have helped build over 80 buildings in 1977 alone. So that's a lot. In April of 1997, Michael Rossi moved out of Gacy's home. So he had been living with him for a while. And in that same month, Gacy became engaged to another woman. They had dated for three months and this fiance moved into his house very quickly in June, they mutually agreed to call off their wedding, however, and his fiance moved out. The next month, Gacy killed a 19-year-old Matthew Bowman, and Matthew Bowman was buried in the crawl space with a tourniquet still around his neck. Also in 1977, Gacy began dating a woman by the name of Carol Hoff, and we recognize Carol, right? They've dated before, and Gacy was hoping to reconcile with her. By the end of 1977, Gacy had murdered an additional six young men between the ages of 16 and 21. And that first victim in that group was 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, who was last seen alive on September 15th. He had been suffocated and buried in Gacy's crawl space. Hey, for bonus fun... We could turn this into a drinking game and you guys could take a shot every time I say crawl space or every time I mispronounce asphyxiation. No, please don't do that. I, I don't want to be responsible for your alcohol poisoning. Um, so anyway, going on. So he'd been dating Carol and all of this was starting to turn around for him. He had killed the additional six victims. The first one being Robert Gilroy. And we know that he was buried in the crawl space. On September 12th, Gacy flew to Pittsburgh to supervise yet another project. And he didn't return, supposedly, until September 16th. But this was never, as far as I could see, completely confirmed. So 10 days after Gilroy was last seen, Gacy kidnaps yet again someone else. 19-year-old Marine by the name of John Mowry, and John Mowry had disappeared after leaving his mom's house, and he was walking back to his own, so they lived pretty close together, and he was found to be strangled to death, buried in the northwest corner of the crawl space, perpendicular to the body of William Bundy. On October 17th, 21-year-old Russell Nelson disappeared. He had been last seen outside a Chicago bar. He had died of suffocation and was buried in the crawl space. Less than four weeks later, so not even a month, 16-year-old Robert Winch was murdered and buried in the crawl space as well. On November 18th, 20-year-old father Tommy Bowling disappeared. He was last seen leaving a Chicago bar. So now we're starting to see the places where Gacy tends to frequent, right? Winch and Bowling were both strangled to death and they were both buried in the crawl space directly beneath the hallway. On December 9th, 19-year-old Marine, so another Marine, David Talsma disappeared. He had told his mom that he was going to a concert that night. He was strangled with a ligature and buried in the crawl space. 
On December 30th, 1977, Gacy abducted 19-year-old Robert Donnelly. Donnelly was abducted from a bus stop at gunpoint by Gacy. Gacy drove Donnelly back to his home. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Home raped and tortured him with various different objects and repeatedly would dunk his head in and out of water until he passed out. And then Gacy would wake him up and revive him as soon as he did. Donnelly felt so terrible while all this was going on, he would eventually testify at Gacy's trial that he had been in so much pain that he begged Gacy to kill him, to, quote, get it over with, end quote. And Gacy just replied, quote, I'm getting round to it, end quote. Like, what a monster. So Donnelly had been assaulted and tortured for hours until Gacy finally drove Donnelly back to his place of work, removed his handcuffs, and released him, saying, quote, Don't tell the police because they won't believe you, end quote. Like, what a complete and total psychopath. I mean, it just shows you what the true character of this real-life villain looks like. I mean, it's just the worst of the worst, or one of, in my opinion. So, going on to the next year, 1978, Donnelly finally reported his assault to the police. On January 6th of that year, Gacy was finally questioned, and he admitted to having, quote, slave sex, end quote, with Donnelly. Whatever that is, I'm not super sure. But anyway, the point of it was that Gacy was basically insisting that the sex was consensual and the police believed him, so there were no charges filed at all. The next month, Gacy killed 19-year-old William Kindred, who disappeared on February 16th. He had told his fiancée that he was spending the evening at a bar and he would be the final victim to be buried in John Wayne Gacy's crawl space. <clears throat> On March 26th, Gacy lured 26-year-old Jeffrey Rignall into his car. Gacy chloroformed him and drove him to his house. He would then rape him and torture him like he would so many others with various instruments, things like lit candles and whips, and he would repeatedly chloroform him over and over, and this repeated exposure to chloroform would eventually cause permanent damage to his liver. Gacy then drove Rignall to Lincoln Park and dumped him there, unconscious but still alive. So, just dumped him and just trusted that he wouldn't say anything. He just, he was so cocky about all of this. It's, it's wild. He was just so cocky. He had no reservations about any of this at all. Rignall eventually staggered to his girlfriend's apartment 
and called the police, but they did not investigate Gacy right away. What Rignall could recall was not very much. He remembered the black Oldsmobile. He remembered being on the Kennedy Expressway, and he could remember a few select side streets that he had seen. Rignall staked out this exit on the expressway that he could remember for several days, and in April, he finally saw the Oldsmobile again, and he followed it to 8213 West Summerdale. Shocker. So, police used this information to issue an arrest warrant, finally, and on July 15th, Gacy was arrested. And what's crazy is that he was already awaiting a trial at the time for a battery charge that we talked about in the last episode. So, I want to talk about Gacy's final murders now. Gacy confessed to the police that he was planning to store bodies in the attic, but he was worried about, quote, excessive leakage, end quote. Like, oof, ugh. Like, that's the only thing that you're concerned about? You killed dozens of people and you're concerned about leakage? You're concerned about your carpet? Like, I can't. I can't deal with it. (laughs) But anyway, so he chose to start disposing of his victims on an I-55 bridge near the Des Plaines River. He claimed to have thrown five bodies in total off of this bridge, and he actually believed that one of them landed on a passing barge. Only four of these bodies were ever found. So there's there's just no telling where the other one ended up. Or maybe he miscounted. He probably doesn't even know how many people he killed at any given point in time. So the first known of these bridge victims was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke, and he was killed in mid-June. He was last seen leaving his Dover Street apartment. He had told his roommate he was just going out for cigarettes, and on June 30th, his body was found six miles downstream. On November 4th, Gacy killed 19-year-old Frank Landingen. On November 12th, his body was also found in the river. On November 24th, 20-year-old James Mazzara disappeared, and he had last been seen at Thanksgiving dinner with his family. On December 28th, his body was found. His cause of death was determined to be suffocation because he was found with his own underwear lodged in his throat. And it was eventually discovered that he had drowned in his own vomit and was also strangled with a ligature. And so now we're going to talk about the murder of Robert Peast. On December 11th, 1978, Gacy visited a pharmacy in Des Plaines. He attempted to strike a business deal with the owner while he was there, and he just so happened to also overhear one of the employees, a 15-year-old by the name of Robert Jerome. Gacy told him that he hired teenagers and offered to pay him $5 an hour to come and work for him, which was nearly double his current pay at the pharmacy. Gacy left the pharmacy, and shortly afterwards, Peace's mother arrived to pick him up from work. And Peace told his mom that, quote, some contractor wants to talk to me about a job, end quote. Peace left the store, promising that he would be right back. And we all know that that didn't end up too well. So I want to talk about the investigation now. Peace's family obviously reported him missing. And the owner of the pharmacy gave Gacy's name because he had been talking business with him shortly before all this had gone down. But Gacy denied ever talking to Peace at first, and then he said, well, I may have asked him where some remodeling material was. But he was adamant that he never offered him a job, 
and he promised to come to the station to make a statement saying that just that, basically. He said he would go that evening. He claimed he couldn't go right that moment because his uncle had just died, supposedly. So Gacy said he would come back that night, right? He showed up at 3.20 a.m., also completely covered in mud, especially from the waist down. He claimed he had been in a car accident. Gacy was asked to prepare a statement detailing all of his movements on December 11th, the day that Peace had gone missing. So let's talk about some things that ended up being revealed in all of this. The DePlanes police were convinced that Gacy was involved, so they decided to check Gacy's record. They discovered his outstanding warrant for the battery charge, and they discovered his prison stint for the sodomy of a 15-year-old boy. On December 13th, Gacy's house was finally searched, and there were several suspicious items found, some of which being a class ring with the initials J-A-S, various different driver's licenses, a pair of handcuffs, a two-by-four with holes drilled in the ends. There were books on homosexuality and pederasty. pederasty? Oh, your guess is as good as mine. And a syringe, as well as some male clothing that was way too small for Gacy. And a six-millimeter... A a pistol. A six-millimeter gun. I'm sorry. I I don't do guns. So, especially if it has a weird name, you can just forget about it. So, anyway, though, a gun. And a photo receipt from the pharmacy where Peace had worked in... Gacy's name like with his card information and all that good jazz at the time that he was there but he he didn't know peace no no didn't know him so the police confiscated Gacy's car and several of his PDM vehicles as well and there was a two-man police group assigned to surveillance Gacy at all times by this point now the next day the police got a call from Michael Rossi who told the police about Gossick's disappearance And then he told them about the PDM employee, Charles Hutula, who drowned in the Illinois River the previous year. And so he was basically saying that he thought Gacy had something to do with his disappearance and drowning as well. On December 15th, police obtained the details behind Gacy's battery charge, which were not pretty. That same day, police interviewed Gacy's wife and learned about the disappearance of John Butkovich. That same day, they traced the school ring to John Alan Szyk, remember. John, I'm sorry, I'm going to stick with John. The same day they interviewed John's mom and informed her that her son had disappeared around January of 1977. So by December 16th, Gacy was aware that he was being followed by the police, and he would do such cocky things. He would invite them to come out and eat. He would invite them out for drinks and invite them into his home, just like they were buddies and not police trying to catch him for murder. Gacy would repeatedly deny any involvement in Peace's disappearance and actually would accuse the police officers of harassment. He would taunt the police by flouting traffic laws, trying to get away from them, and he would succeed on losing them on occasion. On December 17th, police formally interviewed Michael Rossi. Um, He told them that Gacy sold him John's car. He said that Gacy claimed John needed money because he was going to be moving to California. 
That same day, Gacy's car was searched for a second time. And there were some small clusters of fibers discovered. And the police thought, hey, maybe these are hair. So they sent them out for testing. And to go along with it, they brought in three German shepherds to search Gacy's cars and the PDM vehicles. And one of the dogs alerted in Gacy's passenger seat to the smell of dead bodies, indicating that possibly Peast had been dead and in Gacy's vehicle. That night, Gacy invited two of the detectives that were surveying him out to dinner. And on December 18th, Gacy invited them out again to breakfast. And they joined him. And he talked about his business and his marriages and about what being a clown was like. And he would be quoted as saying, quote, you know, clowns can get away with murder, end quote. Like, come on. What does he have to do? Does he have to paint a picture? Does he have to get a neon sign saying, hey, look, it's me. I did it. Like, oh my gosh, just get him, get him, get him, get him. Sorry. Anyway, so there was also a civil suit involved in all of this as well. On December 18th, Gacy began to show signs of strain. He was going around unshaven, which he normally didn't do. Um, He looked very tired and was appearing very anxious, and he was drinking way more than he normally would. That same afternoon, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office, and he wanted to prepare a $750,000 civil lawsuit against the DePlanes Police Department. He demanded that they cease surveying him immediately. But, however, right around the same time, the police found the receipt from the pharmacy with all of Gacy's information on it, dated the same day that Peast went missing. The receipt actually belonged to a woman who had put it in her jacket right before giving it to Peast. And the police spoke with this woman, and she claimed to see Peast leaving the pharmacy to go talk to a contractor. So they contacted Gacy, got his statement once again, and heard his side. But they determined that after hearing all of this information, that he must have had some sort of physical contact with Peast that day. That same night, Michael Rossi was interviewed yet again, and Rossi was even more cooperative this time than he was before. He told he told the police that Gacy had had him put lime and spread out all around in the crawl space back in 1977. So not only was he having people dig these graves for him, he would have them spread lime to help eat away at the corpses underneath his house. Oh, anyway. December 19th, investigators began compiling all the evidence that they had against Gacy. And they had enough to warrant for a second search warrant for Gacy's house. That same day, Gacy's lawyers finally filed the civil suit that they had been preparing for for so long. And there was a hearing scheduled for December the 22nd. That afternoon, Gacy invited the detectives that had been following him around into his house. One of the officers decided that they would distract Gacy, you know, make small talk with him while the other one would go snoop around in Gacy's bedroom. He noticed that there was a Motorola TV set which had been found missing from one of Gacy's supposed victims. And that officer could also smell a smell of death in Gacy's heating ducts that cops couldn't smell when they searched before because it had been winter And cold weather would kind of keep that smell at bay more so than it would during the hot summer months. 
So December 20th, David Cram and Michael Rossi were interviewed again. And a detective asked Rossi where he thought Gacy would have hidden a body. And he replied, quote, in the crawl space. He could have put him in the crawl space, end quote. And Rossi passed a lie detector test when giving this information. So even though he passed the lie detector test, they asked him to do a follow-up visual test, which he could not make it through. He asked for the test to cease before it was over. And it was because he was freaking out. They were basically showing him a map of Gacy's neighborhood and would point at the area where Gacy's house was and was like, do you think that... John could be buried here and his blood pressure was just going off the charts and he was getting so nervous. And me personally, this is, you know, allegedly my opinion. I think that, um, he was freaking out at just the sight of that house again because terrible things happened to him in there. Of course he's going to freak out and have this sort of PTSD reaction when he sees this house again. So I don't put a whole lot of conspiratorial credence into that. So anyway, um, he did, however, discuss digging in Gacy's crawl space whenever Gacy asked him to. So they did get that information from him. Cram, Cram told the police about Gacy's attempted rape against him in 1976. He told them that he was with Gacy when he was suspected that <clears throat> he had several people digging in his crawl space. He said Gacy asked him to do so as well and spread lime around in the crawl space while also digging trenches. Gacy claimed that they were for plumbing, like I said. But however, these trenches would measure two feet wide, six feet long, and two feet deep. Very similar to that of a grave. So guys, that is where I want to end part two. When we come back next week, we're going to get into Gacy's confession, his arrest, his trial, and we're going to get into basically all of the aftermath from these terrible, terrible murders. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. This is really the meat of John Wayne Gacy's story for give my word choice, but you know what I mean? If we're talking about a sandwich here, this is, this is the part that everyone knows and it's the worst part it's the most unfortunate part of the story but to me it's the most important part as well because we need to hear about the horrible parts of some of these cases because we can study this and you know they say one of the most important parts about history is not to repeat it right and the only way that we can maybe one day stop some of these horrible things from repeating is by learning it and understanding it and making an effort to end the too often occurrence that is murder. So anyways, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, as always, please comment and let me know if there's anything that you think I could improve upon, anything that you would like to see me change. If you've got a case that you want to see me cover, I'm always open to suggestions. So I just want to ask you guys to please check out the Vicious Villains Facebook page. I've got a Vicious Villains Facebook page all up and running, totally ready for you guys to check out. So I'll be posting a lot of information there soon. And so please check that out. And as always, rate, like, subscribe, anywhere that you're listening to this podcast. It really does help me out so, so much. 
So thank you guys for listening as always. I love you all. I hope you're all staying safe out there in the world and staying hopeful as well. So have a good rest of your week, guys. And I'll see you next time when we get ready to talk about the final parts of John Wayne Gacy's story. See you guys.